Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Welcome, it's so good to have you back, and we're looking forward to our next installment of Corrective Lenses. Uh, we are very certainly proud of you for continuing your eagerness to learn, and uh, I imagine that with me you are excited to, and eager to hear tonight. Um, I'm particularly excited about the topic, uh, when, when Chad gets up here to talk about Jesus among other gods. And that can be any number of things, but we know from the start that what we're talking about is something having to do with the relationship between Christianity, Christ, and other faiths, other religions. And this is a question that all of us, either on a personal level or someone we know well, are going to wrestle with. We have all either thought ourselves the question or had somebody ask us, how is Christianity any different from anything else? And this is a particularly important question in a globalized world where we can, you know, on our computers, go anywhere in the world immediately. It is impossible to ignore the fact that we're hardly the only ones around who say we believe certain things and live in ways because of those beliefs. So, important question, and even hearing Chad uh, just briefly tell me in the back some of the ways he's going to frame this up have me more excited. Of course, we're not going to try to walk through all of the beliefs of every other faith in the world. More so, he's going to give us, in keeping with the series, a lens through which we might view religion, uh, what, is, what, e- what is that even, and then also these questions about the nature of Christianity in relationship to other faiths. So, as is always the case, you can text in questions to our, our, uh, our uh, line here that will come to us, and if we have some time at the end, I'll come back up and ask some of those to Chad. Uh, but for right now, I want to pray for us, and then I'm going to get out of the way so he can uh, start teaching us. Uh, let's pray. Father God, thanks so much for your presence in the room, and we're grateful that we don't have to ask you to come here, but rather we can acknowledge that we already are in your presence. You are here. And as we talk tonight about uh, our own faith, which we believe to be true, because we believe that you've revealed it to us, and as we talk about in relationship to the fact that there are others who believe things that we don't think are true, and that sometimes is hard for us. So help us, help Chad uh, give him the words and the concepts and the illustrations and the, the logic and the thoughts to uh, share with us so that we might grow in this area. And we're thinking, we think of uh, prayers like Paul's in Philippians that pray that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. That's our desire, that we become people who love you and one another and the world more. And we know that this happens uh, when we grow in knowledge. So uh, bless us in those ways. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, so, uh, hello, good evening. A few, a few things um, as we get started. First of all, next week will be our last week uh, in this series. And just to kind of give you a little foretaste of what that's going to be, uh, Mark and Michael and I went through some of the questions that have come in throughout this semester so far that we haven't really discussed in any depth whatsoever. And we just tried to to think through these last two weeks, how can we address some of these questions? Uh, there, there have been a whole group of questions related to Scripture itself. Uh, question, questions everywhere, everything from, like, how was the Bible formed? Can I trust the Bible? Things like that. So next week, we're going to give those questions a shot. We're going we're gonna to talk specifically about Scripture. We're going to talk about some issues related to you know, the reliability, the canonicity of Scripture, things like that. So that's going to be next week um, and our final week together on this. Let me, let me start tonight's talk <clears throat> Excuse me, just by giving you what I think is really an undeniable truth. The undeniable truth is that uh, you and I live in a pluralistic society. 
Now, pluralistic is not a dirty word. It's not a bad word. It's simply a descriptive word. A pluralistic society is a society that is characterized by access to multiple perspectives and multiple viewpoints, especially multiple viewpoints on what is true, multiple viewpoints on the nature of God and things like this. We live undeniably so in a pluralistic world, in a pluralistic society. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way necessarily, especially when you live in the Bible Belt. And it seems like most every person that you know is either a Christian, uh, a passionate, like church-going Christian, or maybe a nominal Christian who doesn't go to church very much, but they still identify themselves as such, or maybe they're not a believer at all. Um, But we do live in, in in a very flat world because of technology, because of what we see on television, what we experience on the internet. We live in a world surrounded by people of multiple faiths. Um, Every time you turn on the news, this is in front of you on the news. Every time you go online, this is in front of you online. Um, And more and more, what I'm encountering, especially with students, is um, younger people are much more sensitive to this reality than older people are oftentimes because of the specifically multicultural world that our young people are living in, they're much more sensitive to the pluralistic nature of our world than sometimes older people might be. And so they ask me, oftentimes they'll ask me questions related to how does my faith interact with these other perspectives, these other worldviews, these other religions of people that I see, whether it's people I see on TV or people I experience in my life in high school or whatever. So, so the question essentially is, how does my faith relate? What about all of these other people and all of their different beliefs? What, what does Jesus have to say to them? Or wh- how should I understand my religion in light of this vast arena of religious ideas that is in the world today. So it's a question that we as followers of Jesus, if you, if you put yourself in that category, it's, it's a question that we need to think through. And what I'm not going to be able to do tonight, partly because of time and partly because of my own limited expertise in this area, is I'm not going to be able to provide a detailed analysis of the major world religions around us every day. I I may be able to do a little bit of that, especially towards the end of our time together, but I want to cast the net even wider than that tonight, okay? And so what you have in front of you, um, especially on the first page of your handout, is really just, there's no blanks to fill in there or anything else. It's just a bunch of questions, a bunch of questions that I have related to this topic. And uh, we're going to get a little bit uncomfortable tonight, but that's okay, all right, we're all friends, or at least we can pretend to be friends for a little while. Um, we're going to actually interact with each other a little bit on some of these questions, at least starting off, okay? Because I want you to start thinking through these issues and, and contemplating these issues on your own. So the first question, I, I only have three questions, major questions, that I'm going to address tonight. The first question is related to religion in general. And you see it there on your sheet, what is religion? So just turn to the people around you real quick, and I'm not going to give you a ton of time to do this, but just turn to the people around you and briefly give your best shot at a definition of what religion is, okay? And then we'll talk about it together. All right, ready, go. 
you've probably already talked about the first question briefly. When you, when you finish talking about the first question, move on to, those, to letter A and letter B. Talk, talk briefly with those people around you about the question, is it possible to be spiritual but not religious? And letter B, do you think that Jesus and his first disciples were fans of religion? All right, did you talk through those questions? Let, let me hear from you guys. Um, we might have to just yell it out. But what's, what's your best and simplest definition for what religion is? Anybody brave enough to offer their definition? Yes, you are. Come on. Hit me with it. A man-made hypothesis of things to follow. Even snuck that word hypothesis in there. All right. Get it? Okay. What do you, what do you mean? Can you, can you, this is the professor in me coming out. Explain what you mean by that. What do you mean by man-made hypothesis? <laughs> Sure. So that creates the idea that a religion can be solely based off of what a man or right. Woman thinks. Right. So you're you're saying two things there, which I I want to separate them a little bit just to highlight them. The one thing that you're talking about is rituals, which I, I would agree with that there are rituals that go along with religion. The second thing that you're talking about is the <clears throat> the man-madeness of of these religious rituals. And I think that there is some truth to that as well, that, that much of the rituals of religion, if I'm going to take an outsider point of view, okay, if I'm going to adopt an outsider point of view from the outside looking in at religion, I think that it's very easy to see how so much of the ritual, the tradition, the, the process of religion is manufactured by men as an attempt to worship God or to know God or to maybe even to control people, whatever. Um, okay, what else? What, what's the definition of religion? Man's idea on how to connect to God. So again, we have this idea of sort of man-made, but, but we also have this idea of religion as the attempt, man's at- attempt anyway to connect to God in a meaningful way. Um, so that gets at maybe the purpose of religion. What else? Yes, ma'am. So you think of the individual different religions. You know, there are, there are several, you know, of the major religions in the world, and, and you, you probably already know what they are, but um, historically speaking, there's really only two major religions in the world. And that would be Judaism and Hinduism. Um, Because Buddhism is a derivative of Hinduism. Of course, Christianity and Islam are derivatives of Judaism, at least, you know, if we're looking from the outside, looking in. Um, And so, yeah, it's easy to think about these major worldwide religions um, and and their rituals and their followers. What else? Another definition of, of religion. What's that? Emotion. So talking about the, the devotion. devotion. Okay, so ta- talking about um, the, the commitment to it. The, the li- it's, it's a lifestyle. And so the, the li- religion calls us into a life. That's good. 
This is, this is, an, important, this is an important conversation to have. Because whenever you talk about how does my religion compare to other religions, or when you talk about Jesus among the other gods, or however you choose to frame it, you inevitably come back to this conversation about different expressions of faith, right? Different expressions of faith. So we need to know what we're talking about here when it comes to religion. And, you know, religion has become kind of a dirty word in our culture and our world today. I mean, to call a person religious is almost a slam, isn't it? Um, it's almost a cut down, like, you know, Susie, she's really religious. You know, like, what is that code for? Like, Susie is what? Maybe kind of uptight, maybe judgmental, maybe hypocritical. You know, like, religious has become a code word. It's become a nice cut down, sort of like holy. Oh, yeah, she's really holy. You know, like, it's hard to say that without sounding just a little bit sarcastic even. Um, and so religion, especially in our culture, religion has attained kind of a negative connotation, which is interesting because that's really new um, as far as historically speaking. We're, we're one of the first societies in really in the history of civilization that have regarded religion in this sort of way, uh, which is just kind of historically interesting to me. Um, here's, here's, how I, here's how I would like to define religion. Um, <clears throat> I like to think of religion like a balloon. Okay, I know that sounds strange, but let, let me explain what I mean. Um, the air that's coming out of my mouth right now is invisible. You can't see it. You can hear it, but you can't see it. Okay? Um, but the moment that I get out a balloon and I blow up a balloon, all of a sudden, the air that's coming out of my mouth, it's given shape. It's given boundaries, it's given color. So the balloon adds shape, boundaries, and color to the air coming out of my mouth. Now, what in the world does that have to do with religion? Every single person, it's my conviction, that every single person is spiritual in their core. And, and all that means is that we were created for worship. We were created for devotion. We were created to be spiritual beings. And this is why, you know, through the history of civilization, no, no matter how far science has advanced or technology has advanced or civilization has advanced, um, spirituality and religion has always um, been popular. Uh, you know, there, there, there were people during the Enlightenment, you know, several hundred years ago, Enlightenment thinkers who were proudly announcing the imminent death of religion. Why? Well, because look how smart we are. Look how enlightened we are. Look how civilized we are. We don't need religion anymore. But they've been proven wrong over and over and over again historically because there's just part of us, inherent to us, that is spiritual. And spiritual people inevitably will try to find some sort of expression for their spirituality. They will try to find some way to express their spirituality. And I've, I know I've used this illustration before, but let me go back to this illustration. Maybe it'll help me make sense. <clears throat> if I fall in love with a girl... That feeling of love is an abstract feeling. But I start to search for concrete ways to express that feeling to her. So maybe it's through the, the purchase of a dozen roses. Maybe it's by writing a love poem. Maybe it's through a dinner and a movie. But I try to find some concrete expression of that abstract reality. So let's go back to the balloon illustration. I'll, I'll, I'll mix my metaphors a little bit. 
our religion, and I'm not talking about Christianity specifically, I'm talking about religion in general. Religion gives our spirituality color and shape and boundaries. It allows us to physically express our most deeply held beliefs. So religion is spirituality put into action. Religion is spirituality with a body. Okay? It's spirituality with a body. And as such, it doesn't have to be negative then, and it could actually be extremely positive. Um, so for instance, um, <clears throat> and I know I've used this illustration before as well, but, but if I believe that God has given me everything that I am, everything that I have, if, God, if I believe that, I want to express that in some way, tangibly, and maybe I express that through giving offerings, giving tithes, which is a religious thing. Or if I believe that God is there, that God is accessible, and that God hears me and wants to hear from me, I will express that belief, how? By offering prayers. Prayer is a distinctly religious ritual. But it's an important religious ritual that tells, that expresses something true about what I believe. Is this making sense? So again, religion is simply our attempt to make concrete or real our spirituality, to give it shape, to give it boundaries, to give it color. That leads to the second question then. <clears throat> there was, and I just looked this up on YouTube because I wanted to get the most up-to-date uh, numbers. There is a uh, video on YouTube uh, which is called Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. And uh, it's been seen uh, 450, actually no, it's been seen 28,300,000 times. Um, that's quite a lot of views. 28, over 28 million times this video, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus, has been seen. Um, I want to I get your feedback on that. Because the second question is, is it possible to be spiritual but not religious? And it's related to the third question, what did Jesus think about religion? Um, what do you think about that second question? Is it possible to be spiritual but not religious? What do you think? Yes, KJY. Like you think about Yeah. I mean, one way that I would answer this question is yes, it's possible. Why? Because a lot of people choose, a lot of people are in fact living this way. They actually say I'm spiritual but I'm not religious. So, obviously it's possible at least to an extent because this is essentially the faith that people have adopted. That, but I always wonder, what exactly does that mean? When people say they're spiritual, but not religious, the inquisitive part of me is always kind of scratching my head, well, like, again, explain that. <laughs> explain what that looks like to me. What does it mean to be spiritual? Because there, there are few words in our society today that are, that are as abused and misunderstood as the word spiritual. Because I've got an inkling of a feeling that when most people use the word spiritual, what they're really talking about is their emotions and their feelings and nothing more. They're talking about how they feel on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, they're not really talking specifically anything about God necessarily. They're talking about an emotional response or an emotional feeling. I can't, I can't help but be just a little bit skeptical of the person that says they're spiritual. But I, I understand where they're coming from. 
Um, because sometimes, you know, religion has been used to manipulate. It's been used to oppress. It's been used destructively. I, I understand where they're coming from. I understand the point that they're making. But my, my pushback on that is you're going to find some way to express your spirituality. It's going to seep out. You talk about the agnostic. Okay, the agnostic is going to find some way to express his spirituality or her spirituality. It may not mean them walking through the front doors of a church. But they're going, here's my point, and it's been a point that we've tried to make throughout this entire series. If you have a worldview, you're going to live it out. And since everyone does have a worldview, they're living out some sort of worldview. You can't escape it, you can't run from it. So the person that says, I'm spiritual but not religious, I want to say, but no, you are religious. You, might, you just might not go to church, or you may not practice a traditional religion or an institutional religion, but you're, you're giving expression to your faith in some way, shape, or form. Um, we all participate in rituals that demonstrate the truth of what we believe. This leads to the third question. What does Jesus think about religion? What did his disciples think about religion? Good, and, and I think we would all agree there's good and bad, maybe. Um, what, what did they think about religion? Any ideas? Let's just think about Jesus. What was his orientation towards religion? See, right now some of you are thinking, it's a trap. I'm not going to answer. It's a trap. What do you think about religion? Did Jesus have anything positive to say about religion? Anything at all? Yeah. The law and the prophets. Mm-hmm. He didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, to, but to fulfill them. Yeah. Jesus talked about, did Jesus talk about prayer? Yes. Did Jesus talk about fasting? Yes. Did Jesus talk about giving offerings? Yes. Did Jesus ever go to the temple? Yes. Now he overturned the tables at the temple. You know, he's kind of, kind of a, um, a a destructive force in the temple, but he went to the temple. Did Jesus ever go to synagogue? Yes. Did Jesus ever read scripture? Yes. You realize every single one of those is a religious thing. It's a religious action. Did Jesus ever participate in Passover? Yes. Did Jesus ever go to Jerusalem for a religious festival? Yes. See, Jesus actually practiced religion, and he assumed that his followers would be practicing religion. But what did Jesus say negatively about religion? Because he did actually say some negative things about religion. What did he say? And it goes to the point that you were making earlier, or part, part of the point that you were making earlier. What did Jesus say negatively about religion? Yeah, what's, what's the point there, Cliff, that he's making? He called the Pharisees and the leaders whitewashed tombs. What's the point that he's making? Yeah. So <clears throat> they, were, they were religious for religious sake. They were religious for nothing other than the applause of men. It was ritual devoid of meaning, devoid of real life transformation. 
When Jesus tells the Pharisees, you're whitewashed tombs, what he means by that is you look really religious on the outside. You look pristine and holy and righteous on the outside, but on the inside, you're dead. And one of the consistent critiques of religion by Jesus, Jesus didn't hate religion, but he does oftentimes critique a shallow religion that is just about ritual, but isn't about a real transformation in the heart. And so that's why he had very negative things to, pay, to say, for instance, about hypocrisy, just putting on an act, putting on a show so that other people will see it. Religion, religion will oftentimes take that form, won't it? Where we become more interested in being religious than we are really in being disciples of Jesus. And I think a lot, a lot of people, the problem that they have with religion is honestly the same problem that Jesus had with religion. The fact that it is oftentimes just about ritual, just about putting on a show. And it's, but it's not really authentic on the inside. There's no real transformation that has happened on the inside. I, I want to I, I lay this out as clear as I can, though, at the very beginning, so that when we talk about religion, we know what we're talking about. Okay, so again, religion is the expression of our most deeply held beliefs, and religion is natural for human beings to, to, to participate in, in some way, shape, or form. I think it's safe to say that Jesus was a fan of religion, but also Jesus had some very subversive things to say about religion too. So as we ponder what it means to be a religious person, to be a person who follows Jesus, I think that it's important that we remember some of the things that Jesus said about what religion ought to be. You know, so Jesus said, when you pray, don't pray so that everybody knows that you're praying. Um, go in your closet and pray. Or when you give, don't give in such a way that everyone celebrates what you give, but give in such a way that God knows and God will get, reward you for that. And so I think we should continue to be challenged by how Jesus both affirmed religion but also challenged religion. No, so as we take this next step into the next question, we need to keep those things in mind because people will inevitably ask this question. Whenever tonight's issue comes up, the issue of how does my faith or how does my religion relate to other religions <clears throat> in my world? The question will inevitably come up, aren't all, religion, aren't all religious beliefs simply relative? Or in other words, aren't all religious beliefs essentially the same thing? So sort of whitewashing the whole religious landscape. If it's true, as I've said, that everyone is religious in some way, that everyone expresses their deepest held beliefs in some way through religious ritual, um, can't we just say that all religions are basically the same thing? I mean, they're just different, they're just different coats of paint on the same house, okay? Um, this, this is a common question that comes up within the context of, of talking about what we believe as Christians. And so I want to address this issue head on tonight. Um, and it's, it's number two in your handout. And this, this question is uh, stated in several different ways, or this assumption is stated in several different ways. Probably the most common one that I hear is, all religions ultimately lead to God. Have you heard that? that phrase before, all religions ultimately lead to God. So in other words, everyone is religious. I would agree with that. And all religions basically are doing the same thing or leading to the same place. I would have strong disagreements with that. Um, few ways that I would address this specific issue as it comes up. 
the first thing that I would say, and this is on your, your notes here, I think, I think it's good to ask the question, is God a place? And here's what I mean by that. Um, and forgive me if I've used this illustration before. But if, if I'm, um, I was just telling some of the guys uh, in the back that in a few weeks, uh, I'm actually going on a religious pilgrimage of sorts. Um, I, will get in a, I will get in my vehicle. I will drive east um, to Indianapolis where I will pick up my friend and then turn slightly north and end up in South Bend, Indiana. And um, I will attend a Notre Dame football game. First time in several years that I've been able to make it up there, and it's, it's an amazing experience. Yes, Mark and I have that in common, in case you didn't know. We're both Notre Dame nut jobs. Um, and so I, I, will, I will make my pilgrimage to South Bend, Indiana, to watch a Notre Dame game on November 22nd. I'm, ex- I'm really excited about this. Now, to get to, to get to South Bend, there are multiple different ways that I could choose to get to South Bend. Okay? The, the most efficient way is, well, the most efficient way is to fly, really. Um, but you and I both know it's, it's really hard to fly from Joplin to really anywhere, at least efficiently. Um, but I could fly if I wanted to. I could fly. Um, but I'm not. I'm going to drive. And so the most efficient way is to drive east down I-44, eventually uh, head east over to Indianapolis, get on, uh, I think it's on I-69, go north up towards South Bend, um, Basically, whatever my phone tells me to do, that's what I'm going to do. Um, but there are other ways that I could choose to go there if I wanted to take the long way, right? Like I could conceivably, if, if you know, just go with me on this, I could conceivably take a boat to South Bend, Indiana. It's possible if I wanted to. I could take a boat to South Bend, Indiana. It would take some creativity, it would take some patience, but I could do it. Um, I could, if I wanted to, I could drive west to get to South Bend, Indiana, couldn't I? I mean, if I had enough time, I could drive west, get on a boat in the Pacific Ocean, sail around the globe that way, come around the east and, you know, drive from New York all the way back to South... You know, I could circle the globe and get to South Bend if I wanted to go that way. Um, There's literally an endless number of possibilities for how I could get to South Bend, Indiana. And so some people, when they think about God... They're like, yeah, everybody has a religion. We're all just ritualizing our beliefs about God. So one group prays, another group prays. One group gives offerings, another group gives offerings. One group worships, another group worships. Yeah, it might look different here or there, but really we're all going to the same place. It's like different paths up the same mountain. We're, all, we're just all going to the same place. We're all going to God. But it begs the question, is God a place? How is God different than South Bend, Indiana? God's not a place. God's a person. And to me, that's the game changer right there. God is not a place. God is a person. Um, Now, my wife also is a person. I am devoted to her. I'm committed to her. I'm married to her. Now, there are any number of different ways that I can show my devotion to my wife ritualistic ways that I can show my, my devotion to my wife. Ritualistic ways like wearing a ring or having a wedding ceremony. And then there's some more informal ways that I can show my devotion to my wife, right? Cleaning up the house, doing the laundry. You know, I, some informal ways that I can express that. But one of the ways that I cannot express my devotion to my wife is by loving other women. You with me on that? Well, I'm... 
I mean, all my love goes to the same place. I mean, you're a woman and she's a woman. Can't I just love you by also loving her? Doesn't make any sense. I mean, that's just, that's just ridiculous, right? But that's exactly what people who make this claim, that's what they say about God. That you can sufficiently love God or devote yourself to God by devoting yourself to other gods instead. Scripture had a word for this. The word was idolatry. Idolatry. When we give our devotion to something else other than the living God. And so, again, the assumption is that all, all religions lead to God. I, I push back on that assumption just with the observation that God is not a place. God is a person. And if God is a person, there are right ways to show our devotion to him. And there are also wrong ways to show our devotion to him. Another observation that I would make is this. Do all religions really say the th- same things about God? And does this even matter? Um, it seems to me that most people who make this claim, or many people who make this claim, are non-religious people themselves. And so from the outside looking in, if you don't really know what a certain group of people believes about God, it's very easy, again, to whitewash their beliefs. Oh, it's all the same thing anyway. It's all, there's no difference it's, inter- it's interesting, uh, um, a friend of mine was at a church planting conference several years ago up in Chicago, and this church planting conference, uh, at least he thought it was a church planting conference, it was actually like a community development conference, but this community development conference was put on by a denomination in Chicago, an extremely liberal denomination, um, extremely liberal, I, I won't get into that, but um, it was put on by that, but it was, in, it was advertised as an interfaith community development conference. And the speaker, the lead speaker for the conference, got up in front of everybody, a person who is um, a Christian leader, a Christian preacher. He got up in front of this entire conference and said the following. He said, listen, ultimately we know there's, there's not a lot of differences between our different faiths. We're all trying to accomplish the same things for the same purposes. We may as well unite with each other to accomplish community initiatives. And my friend was sitting in the audience just appalled that this is what was being said. He was actually sitting next to a Muslim imam, a Muslim preacher. And so my friend raises his hand and he says, I'm sorry, I don't agree with that. Because frankly, if I'm accomplishing my mission for Christ in this world, my goal is to convert this guy right here. And he pointed to the Muslim imam. And then the Muslim imam, he he looked at my friend and he said, yeah, I agree with this guy. And it was just this funny moment because the Muslim guy and the Christian guy, they don't agree with each other about God. But the one thing they do agree with, with each other on is this. They agree that they disagree. Like, they know that there's a difference between what Muslims say about God and what Christians say about God. And those differences, in fact, matter. I've put this little chart here in your notes just to illustrate this point. There are, on the left side, there are areas in which there may be superficial agreement between different religions. Um, religious rituals, practices of devotion, etc. So most every religion has prayer. Most every religion has the giving of offerings to to support the poor. Um, Most every religion has some sort of religious uh, fasting that goes on or or elements of worship. You know, there's superficial ritualistic similarities between different religious 
expressions around the world. So there are some similarities there. There's also the second area. There's areas in which there is this existential agreement between different religions. So the universal recognition of brokenness and hope for salvation, attending emotions and feelings. Here's what I mean by this. Every religion that I know of is trying ultimately to answer this fundamental question. And it doesn't matter whether it's Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, it doesn't matter. Every single religion that I know of is trying to answer this fundamental question, why is this world so jacked up? It's, it's the brokenness that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Every religion is trying to answer that fundamental question. So we have that in common with other faiths. We also have in common with other faiths the emotional response of religion. I mean, other, we're not the only people that get, that get amped up for worship, that get excited about worship. I mean, there, there are common emotional responses to all people who practice religion. So on the superficial level, there are similarities. And also at the deeper, I just call it the existential level, there are similarities. But here's where the differences lie, the third, the third area, the third row. Areas in which there are irreconcilable differences between the different religions. And this is the critical point. Doctrines concerning the nature and the purposes of God and the means of salvation. So, all religion really starts with the same question— All religion has at least similar rituals and practices. Now, clearly, these differ from culture to culture to culture, right? But even within Christian churches, that's true. So the rituals will change from culture to culture. But where they differ is the answers to the questions. So you can't say that two things are the same just because they're asking the same questions. You can't say that two things are the same just because they're asking the same question if they are giving totally different answers. So when you really evaluate what religions are saying, when you really look at it, you realize they're saying very different things. Let number three, or letter three, Roman numeral three, whatever you want to say. Uh, how do we know that all religions lead to God? I think that's a good question too. There's this, um, there's this uh, very ancient, um, I don't know if it's ancient, but it's very old illustration that sometimes religious relativists will give to illustrate their point. They'll, they'll, they'll picture a scenario where 10 blind men or, or blindfolded men are brought into a room with an elephant. And these 10 blindfolded men are asked to touch a different part of the elephant and to describe what they're touching or to describe the elephant. And so one blindfolded man will say that an elephant feels like a tusk. Another, another blindfolded person will say, no, 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 you're wrong. The elephant actually feels like an ear. Another person will say, both of y'all are wrong. The elephant actually feels like the massive leg. And on it goes. And all 10 blindfolded men give different descriptions for the same elephant. And this is intended to illustrate the point that all religions are just different descriptions of the same God. But here's my question. How do we know, or who has the ability to stand outside of this illustration and rule on the fact that all y'all are wrong? 
Like, who's the person that stands outside of this scenario and says, no, I actually know the secret because I'm not blindfolded. I actually know the secret that all of you guys are actually describing the same elephant. All of you guys are actually describing the same God. Like, who is in a position to do that? This is a little trick. It's a little game that non-religious people sometimes play. What they're actually saying is, I am so enlightened. I, I actually know the truth. But I actually want to push back on that, and I want to say, well, who's to say you're not blindfolded too? Who's to say that you're not living under delusion too? Like, there's, there's really no justification, there's no authority for a person to step outside of this process and say, no, nope, no, nope, I'm the judge of all things religious, and I say that they all are talking about the same God. There's very little justification for that. All right, next thing. Letter B. Some people will say, again, on the same point, that all religious beliefs are culturally conditioned. Um, and these are all arguments, by the way, that I've heard personally. People that have said these things to me personally. That Here's what it means. The only reason that you're a Christian is because you grew up in southwest Missouri. If you would have, grow, if you would have grown up in uh, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, you would have been a Muslim. Or if you would have grown up in Sri Lanka, you would have been a Buddhist. It's hard to argue against that point because it's probably true. If I would have grown up in Riyadh, I probably would have been a Muslim. If I would have grown up in Sri Lanka, I probably would have been a Buddhist. But I also like to turn the tables on that person. I like to say, well, the only reason that you're a religious relativist is because you grew up in the West. Because if you grew up in the East, you wouldn't be a religious relativist because no one in the East is a religious relativist. At least no one in the Middle East is a religious relativist because they all recognize that there's a difference between the two religions. So even their belief of religious relativism is culturally conditioned by where they grew up. But here's, here's the point. This, this, in philosophy, they call this a genetic fallacy, which you probably don't care about, but I just wanted to show off. Um, a genetic fallacy is basically dismissing an idea because you can identify or you think you've identified where it comes from. Dismissing an idea because you think you've identified where it comes from. Christianity is obviously false because the only reason you're a Christian is because you grew up in southwest Missouri. What? What does that have to do with Jesus? What does that have to do with the truth of the gospel? What does that have to do with the resurrection? See, my pushback on that is either Jesus rose from the dead or he didn't. It doesn't have anything to do with where I grew up. It doesn't have anything to do with what culture I'm from. The, the fundamental question about Jesus is, did he in fact raise from the dead? So let's talk about that. This, this is just a diversionary tactic. The next question, uh, letter C, or the next statement, exclusive religious beliefs are arrogant, immoral, and dangerous. Um, and so this is kind of the, the old thing, you know, religious people are dangerous for society, religious people are dangerous for civilization, that people hold, that hold dogmatic religious beliefs, you can't really trust them, um, they're ultimately bad for civilization. There's so many things that I would like to say about this that I just don't have the time for. Um, but one thing that I would say is that it in fact is true to at least some extent that dogmatically religious people have committed acts of violence. In fact, they are even today committing horrible acts of violence in the name of their God, in the name of their religion. There is some truth to this statement. However, the, one of the problems with this statement is that it treats all religious people as if they are precisely the same thing. That one religious person is the same as another religious person is the same as another religious person. There is no difference between all y'all. 
all of you are dangerous for civilization. You're dangerous for progress. You're dangerous for society. And the problem is that doesn't really stand up to the test of history. Because the gospel... Now, Christians have done some awful things. Christians still do some awful things. Sometimes they even do these things in the name of Jesus, which is just shameful. Okay, we should acknowledge that. That's true. But it's also generally true historically that every society and every culture that Christianity found its way into was better because of it. So far from being a destructive force on human civilization, it was Christianity that actually led to the protection of human life. It was Christianity that actually led to the reforming of the educational system, the creation of the first hospitals, the creation of the first orphanages. It was Christians who led for the fight for abolition. It was Christians who led for the right of women to vote. It was, a, it was Christians who sparked the first scientific movement in Western Europe. Don't believe the lies that you've been told about how Christianity and science don't go hand in hand because they do. If you, if you study the true history of science in Western Europe, it's amazing to me that science didn't start in the East. It didn't start in China, which was a thousand years more advanced than we were, technologically. But it didn't, science didn't start in the East. It started in the West because of the Christian worldview, not despite it. All right, let me move on quickly. Letter D. Another way that this question is framed up is that religious beliefs are simply private. And I've talked about this already, I know, um, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but it's the Tim Tebowification of religion. Um, one of the reasons why people were so uncomfortable with Tim Tebow is because Tim Tebow talked about religion during times that you're not supposed to talk about religion, like in post-game press conferences and interviews and, you know, it, and putting it on his eye black during football games, like, Tim, you're not supposed to do that. Be, be religious all you want, but just know the proper time and place for that. You don't talk about Jesus after you get done with the football game, okay? Um, and so people, people got, like, really kind of antsy about that and anxious about that. And even Christian people were kind of wondering, like, Tim, just tap the brakes a little bit, you know? Um, but this is all a reflection of the tendency um, that we have to privatize our religion, and there's a whole history behind that, which I won't bore you with, which I won't... But this, this idea of privatizing religious ideas has a long history behind it, where basically religion has been put in the category of opinions, values. Um, it's certainly not in the realm of facts. It's certainly not in the realm of objective historical truths. And so we are encouraged to be religious all we want, as long as we keep our religion private as long as we practice our religion in our homes or in our churches. Religion is great in those contexts, not so great when you go to work or when you go to school. And um, the way that I illustrate that is with the smoking laws, okay? Smoking is still legal, but it's only legal in certain situations in certain places. You can't smoke on an airplane, for instance, but there are designated places where you can smoke. There are designated places within our society where you can be religious. But outside of those designated places, all of a sudden people start getting nervous. Like, oh no, they're outside of their zone. They're talking about religion at work. Do I file a lawsuit? What do I do? Like, this teacher has a Bible on her desk. Is that, is that okay? Like, like we, we freak out about religion in the marketplace. We freak, about, we freak out about religion in public, but you need to understand that's all a part of a cultural process 
that says, or a, a, a cultural philosophy that says, all religions are essentially equal, so keep it to yourself, okay? Because no one wants to hear about your religion. We all have our own religion, and so just kind of keep it to yourself. And that's just another, another expression of the same sentiment. All right, a lot of other things I want to say about that, but I want to move on. Um, if you turn the page um, on the back side, and Michael, if you want to come back up here and, and join me, I don't know if we've gotten any questions. This might be a good time for, we got, according to my clock, we got about 19 minutes left. And so um, it might be some, a good time for some interaction or some questions if you have any. But I want to talk briefly about relationships specifically between our faith and other faiths then. If it's true, now here's the progress for tonight. I don't know if I've been clear about it or not, but I want to give it to you again. Here's the progress for tonight. Step one, everybody's religious. Everybody's got a religion. Even Jesus had religion. Jesus was subversive about religion. Jesus challenged us to think deeply about the heart of religion, but everyone is religious. Step two leads to the natural question, well, if everyone is religious, then aren't, relig- aren't all religions essentially the same? And the answer that I tried to give to that is, well, no, they're not the same because they make exclusive claims that contradict each other. So you can't hold mutually exclusive claims that are contradictory to each other. It's just illogical. It doesn't make any sense. So it's, it's, it's illegitimate and it's illogical to say that all religions are the same. You could say that all religions are hogwash. You could say that, that all religions are just nuts and many agnostic type people do in fact say that, but you can't legitimately say that they're all true. That's just illogical. So that leads then to the third question then. Okay, so what? What is the relationship then between our faith, the Christian faith, and other faiths of those around us? And that's what I've tried to, in a very brief way, um, put on the on the number three here, which is on that page, and then some on the next page as well, where I just mentioned four specifically, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. I kind of link those together, and then Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I'm not an expert on any of these things, okay, and I, I don't even pretend to be, uh, but I can offer some insights related to how Christianity relates to these faiths. Uh, but before I do that, are there any, is there anything that's come in? Not yet. Not yet? Okay. Okay, so yeah, if you do have any questions that come in, text them to Michael or just wave at me. We can, we can do it that way too. Um, so first of all, Islam. How does our Christian faith relate to Islam? And, um, and it's obviously a very timely question. It's a very important question for us to ask, given what's, you know, some of the things that are happening on the global scale, things that are happening in the news. Uh, there was a news story um, just today about a horrible um, act of persecution um, in Pakistan. Uh, a Christian couple um, martyred because they had supposedly desecrated a Quran. Just a horrible, horrible situation. And so this is, this is a question that's on everybody's mind. What, in fact, is the relationship between Christianity and Islam? And the way that I frame this up is with two questions. First of all, what do they believe about Jesus? Because we are first and foremost, Jesus people, yes? And so any question about the relationship between our faith and another faith has to, I think, start with Jesus. And then secondly, what do they believe about salvation? If every religion is trying to answer the question, why is this world so jacked up? 
well, how, how does Islam propose fixing it? Or what is the, 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 the notion of salvation within Islam? What I've put in your notes is, first of all, some areas of agreement and areas of disagreement that we have with Islam regarding Jesus. Um, Islam is a, is, puts Jesus in a very reverential place. Islam has a lot of affection for Jesus. Um, and so, for instance, um, Islam believes that God sent Jesus as an apostle and a prophet. Um, there are a number of prophets within Islam, and Jesus is regarded as the second greatest prophet, second only to Muhammad. Um, and some Muslims, this isn't a universal belief, but some Muslims even anticipate that Jesus will return. They actually believe in a second coming of Jesus, that Jesus will participate in the judgment of all mankind. They have a very elevated view of Jesus, at least for the most part. Uh, Jesus is regarded as a model of virtue and wisdom. They believe in the ascension. They believe that Jesus ascended into heaven. They believe that he performed many miracles. Now, they don't even believe that about Muhammad. Muhammad performed no miracles during his lifetime, but they believe that Jesus did. And they actually believe in the virgin birth. I know Christians that don't believe in the virgin birth, um, but Muslims do. Muslims accept the virgin birth. Now, here's some areas of differences. Um, they believe that Jesus essentially taught the same message given to Muhammad. So Jesus was sort of like John the Baptist was to Jesus. Jesus was that for Muhammad. And what Muslims believe about the gospel is that they believe that Christians and also Jews have corrupted um, the biblical text, which is actually a common theme. It's a common theme among Muslims. It's a common theme among Mormons. It's a common theme among, among Jehovah's Witnesses. If you find beliefs in Scripture that don't match up with your beliefs, just chalk it up to Christians meddling with the text. They just corrupted the text in some way. And that's what Jews, or that's what Muslims believe happened with the Jews and with Christians. Jesus was actually a Muslim, and so were his disciples. But Christians intentionally distorted the record so that he no longer appears that way in the biblical text. They believe that Jesus predicted the ministry of Muhammad. Uh, they believe the first disciples were Muslims. They believe that Jesus did not die on a cross. And here's the reason why. Um, because God would not allow one of his messengers to die in such a shameful way. Now, honestly, I, I can understand why they've come to that conclusion. Because that fits with w all of the expectations of a Middle Eastern person, even in Jesus' day. If you're truly a prophet of God, if you're truly the Messiah, if you're truly who everybody says you are, then you're certainly not going to die in such a shameful way at the hand of the Romans. And make no mistake about it, the cross was the most shameful, the most painful way to die in the first century. If you were a real man of God, if you were a real prophet, then this shouldn't be your fate. And so Muslims have a serious problem with the cross. They believe that because Jesus was such a great prophet, he did not go to the cross. And I did some research. I actually didn't write it down, though. I should have wrote it down. There's a lot of debate even among Muslims about who was actually crucified on the cross. Some think it was Simon of Cyrene. Some think that it was um, actually an angel. Uh, I think, if I can remember correctly, there's at least 10 different theories among Muslims about who actually died on the cross. They believe that something happened on the cross. There's just some debate about who actually died. The only thing they know for sure is that it wasn't Jesus. Uh, and then lastly, of course, he's not the son of God. 
Um, many historians think that Muhammad actually had a fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of Christianity. Um, that Muhammad was introduced to Christianity at a young age and was actually very um, receptive to the Christian message, at least for a large portion of his life. Um, but many, many historians think that Muhammad had a fundamental misunderstanding of what the Trinity was. Uh, Muhammad believed that Christians believed that God somehow had intercourse with Mary, and this produced Jesus. And so the Trinity was God the Father, Mary, and Jesus. And so, Maha and so Muhammad found that, you know, obviously distasteful, found that to be very pagan, and so rejected Christianity because of this misunderstanding. Not the first or the last to misunderstand the Trinity, by the way. Um, but rejected Christianity ultimately. Among many reasons, this, was, this would be one of the reasons. What do they believe about salvation? Well, I, I hesitate to answer this question for every Muslim everywhere. Um, but the key principle within Islam is submission. That's, that's really the key principle. And you, you, hear this, you hear this in pop culture and in media today. People... Um, you know, trying to defend Muslim or de defend Islam because of, you know, terrorism and other things, basically saying, well, this isn't Islam. This isn't what it really is. Islam is all about. And I would agree with that. You know, we, we have to get beyond this notion that every Muslim we meet is a potential terrorist. Okay. That's, that's just, I don't think any one of us would appreciate the world characterizing Christianity by, by the worst examples of Christianity. Okay. Um, so we need to get beyond the thinking of that every Muslim is a potential terrorist. Um, but, but sometimes you hear this notion that Islam is a religion of peace. Have you, have you heard that before, that Islam is a religion of peace? That's actually a misunderstanding of what Islam is. And I've heard Muslim scholars say exactly this point, that Islam is actually a religion of submission, which leads to peace, but it's about submission. And that's, that's really Muslim. The word Muslim actually means one who has submitted. Um, so salvation ultimately comes about simply through submitting to God. Submitting to God. And so because of that, it's a very fatalistic religion, typically. Um, whatever God is going to do, God is going to do, and it's really out of our hands. And so sometimes it's very fatalistic. It's also a very political religion, too, um, as we see around the world. It's, 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 it's a religion. You, you've got to remember that most Muslim countries never went through the enlightenment that, that we went through in Europe, where there is this, all of a sudden, this separation between the government and the church. That never happened within the Middle East. So they're still operating under the assumption that God is God, not just of the mosque, but God is also God of the palace, the government, God is God over it all. So, of course, we're going to govern our nation according to religious principles. And that's one of the reasons why they have such a hard time understanding Western culture. You know, so, for, for instance, when we have, like, a movie that comes out that denigrates Muhammad in some way, you know, you have Middle Eastern countries calling our Secretary of State, hey, take care of that. And the Secretary of State is like, uh, yeah, that's not really our deal, you know, that freedom of speech, you know. Um, but that's hard for a Muslim country to understand because it, that doesn't really exist. Everything exists within, under the umbrella of submission to Allah. Government, there is no government religion separation. Um, 
And so that's, that's really how they regard salvation. Salvation is through the submission to Allah. And, um, and that's, that's essentially it. Uh, they, they talk about f- the five pillars of Islam, which regard, you know, the, the confession that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet, the, the giving of offerings, um, the saying of five prayers, fasting during Ramadan, pilgrimage to Mecca. You know, these are the five pillars of, of Islam. But it's debatable whether or not that's like salvation to them. That's just what a religious person does is those five pillars. Um, but we see some very critical differences between Islam and Christianity when it comes to Jesus. However, if you look at this next page, um, I've actually typed out to, for you various Quranic verses. These are directly from the Quran, dealing specifically with Jesus. The Quran actually talks about Jesus quite a bit, and also talks about the Bible, or the book, quite a bit as well. And just some interesting things. Um, there was one in particular that I wanted to, to read. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The third quote down. The angels said, Mary, God gives thee good tidings. Now, this actually sounds like the Gospel of Luke. God gives thee good tidings of a word from him whose name is Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary. High honored shall he be in this world in the next near station to God, or in other words, nearest to God. And what's so interesting about this quote is it refers to Jesus as the word of God. It refers to Jesus with that title, which is the same title, if you know the Gospel of John, it's the same title that John uses for Jesus as the word of God. Um, so there's various things within the Quran that speak very favorably, very highly of Jesus and also of the people of the book um, in general. One of the reasons why so many contemporary Muslims are hostile towards Christianity, though, even though, even though the Quran says specifically that you should treat fairly the people of the book, um, one of the reasons why they're so hostile to Christians and Jews today, though, is because Muhammad, as he's writing the Quran, was his own perspective was changing towards the Jews and the Christians. He was at one point mistreated by them, treated very poorly by them, and his own disposition towards Jews and Christians changed by the time he was writing some of his later writings. And it's a principle of interpretation within many Muslim communities that you treat with greater reverence the last written words of Muhammad even more than the first written words of Muhammad. So they put a greater weight in some of the more hostile things that he said about infidels than some of the earlier things that he said about the people of the book. Um, Are there any questions that you have about that? Yeah, Michael. So they're not about Islam. One of them was uh, wondering if you could give a quick explanation of where the phrase Bible Belt came from. (laughs) The phrase Bible Belt, I don't know. Should I just make something up? Um, (laughs) Probably has to do with the Cubs. Yes. Uh, Well, I think that it came from a guy named Alistair Smith down in (laughs) 1778. Uh, No, I I think that the, the term Bible Belt... If you look at a map of the country, there's a whole swath of geography that goes from about South Carolina all the way over to about Oklahoma, 
where um, it's a strongly evangelical, conservative Christian culture. Um, and, you know, you're very aware, and that's why they call it a belt, because it kind of spans the country that way. And you're very apparent, or very, you're very aware of the Bible Belt's existence when you go outside of the Bible Belt. <laughs> you're like, oh, yeah, it is yeah. different. Um, you know, like if you go to New England, it's like, oh, yeah, this isn't the Bible Belt anymore. Um, you know, it's just, we, we have within, with, within Southwest Missouri, I actually talked to an author um, for, who lives in Oregon, and he was doing a story on one of the local churches in Joplin, um, and uh, he called me, and uh, he's an agnostic, he's not a believer, but he's really interested to find out, you know, about this church in particular, and, uh, and just about religion and the Bible Belt in general, okay, which is kind of a loaded question, religion and the Bible Belt. And I think one of the, one of the challenges that we have is that we live in, in a part of the country that has a cultural Christianity um, where a person can feel satisfied giving themselves the label of Christian even if they have no relationship whatsoever with Jesus Christ. So we have kind of the veneer of Christianity, sometimes even the language of Christianity. But, and I think, you, I think we all know this, sometimes it's just an inch deep. You know, we have a cultural Christianity where other parts of the country, like Michael, you spent time in Southern California, it's not this way, outside of the Bible Belt, you know, um, there's not that cultural assumption. Like our school system doesn't even have any events on Wednesday nights. A large part of that is because of church, because of the church culture. I mean, that's the culture we live in. Um, and and that's, that's one of the... But one of the things I told this author was, listen, Bible Belt people are just as messed up as people anywhere else in the country. Okay, so we shouldn't make the false assumption that like, we're living on a different planet over here. Just because we have more churches in our communities doesn't mean that we're somehow, you know, we got everything figured out and, and whatever. I mean, broken people are broken people are broken people. We're everywhere. Doesn't matter where you live. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when I moved to California, the pastor who's from Wichita said one of the things you got to realize is people out here aren't any more sinful. They'll just tell you on Sunday the sins they committed on Saturday. They're not going to hide it at all. So that was a little, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a little true. different. Okay, last question. I imagine this will take mm-hmm. you to the end. There's a couple others that we'll try to cover yeah. or try to get to next week. But uh, talk, if you could, um, you know, with the time you have about uh-huh. differences between Christian denominations. So not so much other faiths oh, yeah, as yeah, much yeah. as other versions um, of our faith. Yeah. Um, hmm. You know, one, one way... <laughs> One way to, to illustrate this is, I don't know why I'm thinking about this. I'm just thinking about my kids' Halloween candy. Um, uh, gosh, I hate Halloween. Um, turns your kids into maniacs. Uh, but if you, if you think about Halloween candy, you know, you got, you got the M&Ms, right? You got the M&Ms. And there's like three different kinds of M&Ms, or maybe even there's more kinds than that. I don't know. But you got, you got the regular M&Ms. You got the peanut M&Ms. You got the peanut butter M&Ms, which everybody knows is the best. Uh, then there's, there's like another kind, like the, what, what sorcery is this? <laughs> Birthday cake M&Ms. I've never heard of, oh my goodness. We'll have to check that out. But you compare that to like, if any, now I don't want to offend anybody in here, but I'm going to run the risk of offending you right now. If you gave out fun dip on Halloween night, you are not my friend. Okay. Um, the two worst the two worst candies on Halloween night are Fun Dip and Pixie Sticks, okay? It's just like, 
a shot of sugar directly to the bloodstream, okay? And also, it just gets everywhere, okay? Everywhere you look. There's some more fun dip. Um, But like, okay, so what's the, back to the denomination question. All right, when you're talking about Christianity as it relates to Islam, that's like comparing um, regular chocolate M&Ms to pixie sticks. Okay, they're both candies. They're both religions, but they're very different than each other. But when you're comparing like the Baptist church to the Methodist church to the Presbyterian church to Christ Church of Orinoco, now you're not talking about a difference in kind. You're just talking about a difference in degree. It's like a difference between chocolate or the regular M&Ms, peanut M&Ms. You get my gist? You get what I'm talking about? So they're differences in degree, not differences in kind. Okay? And so there are, we don't have the time clearly tonight to talk about all the differences in all the different denominations. But most of the differences between the various denominations, if I can just be honest with you, most of the differences are, are largely about ritual is- expression. Um, the way we do worship, the way we organize our churches. Um, that's where a lot of the differences wa- lie. Some of the differences are theological. So we don't believe some of the same things that Presbyterians believe, for instance. Or at least I'll speak for myself. I don't believe some of the same things that Presbyterians believe or some of the same things that Catholics believe. So there are some differences in theology. But where a lot of the largest differences are is in the cultural expression of our faith, the way we do worship, the rituals that we, that we practice, etc., The differences in theology that exist, for the most part, again, I'm speaking in broad stereotypes, but the differences in theology that exist, for instance, between the Christian church and the Presbyterian church and the Methodist church, most of these differences are, for me, not game changers. So in other words, I can can meet a Presbyterian, become friends with a Presbyterian, and I don't feel any need to convert that person. Now, maybe they do need to become more, um, uh, maybe they do need to be taught the way of Scripture more accurately. Maybe they do need to have elements of their theology tweaked or adjusted. Or maybe they need to be invited into a community that is more vibrant and more living. I don't know. I mean, every situation is different. But I'm not going to regard that person as being in need of conversion the same way, at least, that I'm going to meet a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or a Muslim or whatever, and, and I'm going to regard them a little bit differently because the differences in our theology in that sense are too profound. They're too pronounced. I mean, ultimately, it comes back to Jesus, doesn't it? Doesn't it come back to Jesus? And so we've got to start with Jesus. Tell me who Jesus is. Tell me who you say Jesus is. Tell me about your commitment to Jesus. Are you following Jesus? Is Jesus Lord? Um, do you believe that he's been resurrected? Have you committed yourself to him in a public, personal way? You know, like, it comes back to Jesus for me. And, and some, some Christians in our church and in other churches just need to be reminded of that over and over and over again. It's about Jesus. It's about you in relation to Jesus and us in relation to Jesus. And it's not about the, the, the ritualistic expression, it's about your heart. Um, where are you at with Jesus? So, I mean, that, it's a really, and I don't know, I don't know whoever asked the question. I'm sure you probably had a specific denomination in mind, and I'm probably not even answering the question. 
um, very well for you. But, but it's, it's, it's tough to, in a blanket sort of way, talk about the denominations or the different expressions of many, many times, again, the differences are related to how we worship. Sometimes the differences are in theology. Sometimes those differences are profound and important. Sometimes those differences aren't quite as important, but my gosh, gosh, that's a, that's a, that's a big question to answer in five minutes. (laughs) So, um, all right, well, we are out of time. Um, Next week, again, last week, uh, we're going to get together. We're going to talk about scripture and um, I'm going to hang out here for the next few minutes. So if there's any other questions that you had, feel free, come up, talk to me. That'd be great. So see you next week. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.